Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson. We made it to another Friday. Today on the show, a neuroscientist who studies drugs explains why sometimes he does the drugs. That's like saying, so you are a person, you have sex. Uh, Yep, that's right. And then author Martha Wells helps me explain why if you haven't read the Murderbot Diaries series, you are definitely missing out. Anything that makes you feel different or othered in society, people who feel that way have been able to identify with this character. But first, it's our panel on The Week That Was. With us this week is Heather Haverleski. She's written several books and writes an advice newsletter on Substack called Ask Molly. Heather, hey. Hello. And Danny Lavery is the author of Something That May Shock and Discredit You. He writes The Chatner, a weekly humor newsletter about literature and pop culture, and was Dear Prudence at Slate from 2016 until earlier this year. Danny, hey. Hey, back at you. It's so good to be here. Yay. Thanks for coming. Um, so I'm really curious to talk to you, too, about the idea of reentry, because I don't know about y'all, but I'm actually feeling a little disgruntled about the whole thing, like pants and whatever. Um, it's been almost a month now since the CDC kind of said vaccinated people can do pretty much whatever they want, which means a lot of us are being more social than we have in literally more than a year. The Cut recently came out with this great article about how that means FOMO is back, too. That stands for fear of missing out. I'm curious... Do y'all have FOMO? Danny, are you feeling it? I mean, just generally speaking, like, do I have the the human capacity to feel like anticipatory regret? (laughs) Yes, (laughs) definitely. But Great. I'm glad you started Zoomed out. Yeah, but golly, you know, I I don't want to overthink this. I I have to say after a year and a half of mostly being in my living room, um, you know, with the necessary caveat that sometimes getting together with people is a little challenging or I do feel a little overwhelmed at the prospect of all the things that we said we'd do. Um, No, mostly it feels really good to be able to go outside of my house and go to my friend's houses uh, and occasionally be indoors uh, without a mask on. So, uh, no, I feel like I'm finally missing out less. It's funny because I do feel like my, we'll call it fook, fear of overcommitting is probably more intense to me than FOMO. I'm just sort of like, but I don't know. There are a lot of really great things about just staying in and not wearing pants if I don't feel like it, you know? I do know. I, I feel like I still have so much time to do that. Like, it's not really a question of either or. Like, I can, mm. especially based on this last year, I can proportionally go out so much and still have many, many evenings dedicated just to being comfortable. All right. That's enough of that. (laughs) All right, Heather, what do you got? (laughs) I got two neurotic dogs. I got two kids. I have a (laughs) husband. I mean, I, I have FOMO. I'm ready to get in the car alone. Yeah. And drive very far away from some of my responsibilities. But instead... I'm going to get in the car with everybody 
And am I going to miss things? Am I going to miss out as I'm driving across the country, which I'm doing in a few hours? Mm. Um, yeah, I'm going to miss a lot of things. I, I have Are been, you driving to see me, Heather? Yeah, that's why I'm driving straight to Brooklyn. Fantastic. <laughs> uh, to seven. <laughs> I don't know where you live. Wait. Do you actually live on? That's so close to. That's actually incredibly close to where I live. <laughs> Oops. That's really funny. Um, that's incredible. That's funny. I just feel like, I don't know, there are two mentions. That, I mean, I found the cut article to be extremely relatable, but there were two moments particularly that I liked a lot. One was where a woman talked about how she feels like her feet now will reject anything that's not Birkenstocks. And there's also mm. a line somebody has where she says whenever she puts on makeup, like any amount of makeup, she just feels like a Kardashian. <laughs> And I will say it's like, uh, yeah, I don't know. I guess I've expressed myself. I'm just not quite ready yet, y'all. This is the thing. I always, if you have like a a personality that does the opposite of what everyone else is doing, like I thought I was going to be hosting gigantic parties the second the pandemic mm-hmm. ended. Mm-hmm. I'm always, it's like if I, if I decide that everyone else is, I'm reading that FOMO article was bad for me. I was like, I'm not doing that. I was feeling pretty social, and then I read that article, and I was like, no, no, that's too many things. No, stay at home. That's bad. We did ask our Instagram followers about it, and one person did want to bring up the JOMO idea, Joy of Missing Out, which I did want to just, you know, shout out to the JOMO fans out there, because I think that's real and delightful. You know, the important thing is just that we have an acronym for everything. (laughs) Exactly. Thank you, Danny. Correct. So the other piece of reentry that I feel like seems to be throwing people off a little bit that I find really interesting is how much it actually can cost to be a social person in the world, especially as some industries increase costs again now that demand is higher. I mean, rideshares, I think, are a great example lately of just like skyrocketing in price. Do you think normal life is just a synonym for capitalism, Heather? Oh, my God. Um, yeah. Well, you know, when I was extremely broke and had two kids and needed to get them out of the house. Yes, I was very, very, very um, just bothered by the fact that, especially in LA, you just, there are only commercial spaces. I mean, you can go on hikes, I guess, and you can go to the ocean, but most of the activities that people engage in Mm -hmm. with kids are massively expensive. Um, And so... My husband and I would just sit around saying, "Well, Jesus, what are we, what we we could leave the house, but it'll cost us one hundred fifty dollars, like that we don't have. So I guess we'll just stay here." Um, I ended up throwing a lot of uh, beer and cans parties and Taco Bell food things. I mean, you can get around it, but yes, is is normal life a pure capitalist a pure capitalist maze? Absolutely. What do you think, Danny? I mean, you're not gonna you're not gonna hear me disagreeing. <laughs> <laughs> although, although I, I suppose I, sh- I should clarify, I'm not sure if I always know the difference between the word capitalism and expensive when I use it. Mm. So um, you're getting a very non-technical. Well, if it's expensive and you feel alienated from the means of production while it, you're noticing how expensive it is, that's capitalism. There we yeah. go. There we go. go. We got there. We got there. So on the other side of post-vax real life is the fact that only about 43% of people in the United States are fully vaccinated at this point. Um, It seems like 
a lot of different people are kind of pulling out all the stops to encourage folks to get the shots. President Biden got Anheuser-Busch to promise a beer to anyone who got it. There's the whole Krispy Kreme situation. There's a county near us here in Chicago that's offering free tickets to Six Flags. And Washington State is offering a free joint to everybody who gets vaccinated, which I think is fascinating. Um, oh, Danny, let's start with you. Do you think those of us who like spent hours online two months ago fighting to get appointments for these vaccines were just suckers and like we should have waited out for the doobies? I mean, I, I think in as much as people who spent a lot of time online two months ago to get a vaccine got the vaccine, they're not suckers because that's right. what we were there to get. That's true. Um, I, I think, you know, getting getting the vaccine is the main the main thing. And I, I suppose what I'm the most curious about is if somebody with more of like a uh, actual training in like public health uh, has to say about this. My, my general, again, like lay person's understanding of public health initiatives is that things like shaming and punitive uh, measures tend to discourage people from either like signing up or adopting whatever it is the thing you're hoping for them to adopt. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas like giveaways and like increased, you know, awareness, lowering barriers to access uh, makes it likelier to happen. So again, if just the goal is like get as many people vaccinated as possible, you know, whatever works is is the thing to be done, in, in, in my opinion, um, and whatever doesn't work shouldn't be done and that i love that because that's just incredibly bland just like i think we should do what works and i don't think we should do what doesn't work let's do good things and not bad things i'm for success (laughs) you know it's capitalism right it's still (laughs) capitalism so you just make it more expensive and make it sexier lines around the block (laughs) you know i feel like so far between the joints and the donuts and the beers I'm not particularly disappointed by any of those things. I think the state of Illinois is actually considering a lottery for people who got the vaccine. And it sounds like the governor will honor people who already got it. I do think in that case, like if there were like, you know, tens of thousands of dollars on the line and I weren't eligible because I had gotten it early. I do. I mean, speaking of capitalism, I guess I do think I would have been a little crabby about that. You know, I think I want to join a donut. That's all I have to say. I'm trying. I mean, I'm rerouting yeah. my trip through Washington State right now. <laughs> Perfect. Okay, so I also want to talk to you too about Simone Biles. She's the 24 year old gymnast who is so consistently good that she literally has a little goat emblazoned on the side of her uniform. Because yes, she is the greatest of all time. And yes, Danny, we're just using more acronyms. But that's a classic. <laughs> She has won every all-around competition she's entered since 2013. She has more than double the amount of gold medals as any other female gymnast in history. It is amazing, but I'm not like a super gymnastics person. Are either of you, Danny? do you follow it? You know, every couple of years, someone says it's the Olympics, and I always believe them. Um, (laughs) And then if it's the Summer Olympics and they've got gymnastics, I'll definitely do my best to watch it. So you know, in that sense, like when, when, when the public informs me that it's time to notice gymnastics, I do it. Absolutely. Um, but beyond that, you know, I wouldn't say that I'm like an avid fan or I keep up in the off season or like in, in odd numbered years, I'm like, these are the, these are the teams to watch. So, yeah, I think it is really interesting watching her as a fairly uninformed gymnastics person, because like I can tell that she is excellent, but she makes it look so effortless that sometimes I mean, like they're all things that I couldn't do, but I also can't do a cartwheel. So like that's a low bar, you know, but it's like, I don't know, the, I, the 
technique that she has just seems so insane to me. Like, it's almost unfathomable. You know what I mean? Heather, can you do a cartwheel? Yes, I can. (laughs) (laughs) I can do so many things. Um, I am a big gymnastics fan, or I was when I was a kid, Mm. uh, starting in the olden days with Nadia Kamenichi. Now, I believe, referred to as Nadia Kamenichi. I don't know. I mean, I've watched for years and years, and I'm... Uh, I used to be addicted to it, and now I just feel like it's so supernatural. Um, the stunts are so... I mean, it used to be people wobbled on the beam and did a cartwheel on the beam. Like, that was the way it was in the 70s. And now it's like, we launch into the air and do... I mean, you know, you know you've seen. It's just incredible, but but by the same token, it's almost like you just feel like everybody's going to break their neck. I don't know. Maybe I'm too anxious to watch anymore. Mm, no, I mean, that's that's fair. It's so interesting, too, just thinking back to, you know, I, I, I've been sort of chewing on the idea of whether I think Simone Biles' um, work looks effortless or whether I think mm. there's another word that I would use to describe yeah, it. Cause yeah, There's so... I, I think the word that I would use there is, is something more akin to, like... Um, it's drawing attention to a certain type of expertise and proficiency Mm -hmm. in a way that is, I think, highlighting a sense of like ease and fluidity, um, which I I think effortless, you know, certainly gestures towards that. But I think there's a little bit more to like, I think of specifically Carrie Strug, like landing on the broken ankle and the sort Mm -hmm. of classic, like almost like Jenna Maroney, like no one, no one, (laughs) don't worry, I got this. And and that's not to say by the way, that it was like a diva ish moment or, or that, it wasn't fabulous. I mean, it was awful and fabulous at the same, same time. It was incredibly abject. And I think there's this sort of tradition within women's gymnastics of really drawing attention to some combination of extreme, extreme overwork, um, hyper-focus, hyper-determination, um, a, a sort of like effortlessness that's not effortlessness that really draws attention to like, look at how much work I had to put into this. Yeah. And now look at how easy it is. Um, that's really remarkable and that brings together so many different like elements of like pain management and like female intensity. And um, I don't know, I don't have a lot of like sharp thoughts there so much as just like an observation general. Yeah, that wasn't very sharp. That was pretty, (laughs) you need to sharpen your thoughts, Danny. (laughs) I mean, my God, I was was, like, you should write this. It was an introduction. (laughs) That was beautiful. I loved it. Danny, Heather, thank you so much. I hope you both have great weekends. Thank you. You have a good weekend too. It was nice talking. Thank you. This was fabulous. Our next guest is a behavioral neuroscientist who researches psychoactive drugs. And as part of that, he actually does the drugs. His name is Carl Hart. He's a researcher in the psychology department at Columbia University. And he's also the author of a book that came out earlier this year called Drug Use for Grownups, Chasing Liberty in the Land of Fear. Now, one thing we like to do here on Nerdette is invite you to re-examine preconceived ideas. And that is exactly what we're going to do in this interview. This is not an explicit recommendation for you to do any drugs at all. But Dr. Hart has some really interesting ideas and we want to share them with you. Dr. Hart, welcome to Nerdette. 
Thank you for having me. So when your book came out earlier this year, you talked to Trevor Noah on his show and you said something really interesting that I think we should start with. Let's take a listen. The first thing people have to understand is in the United States, drugs are not banned because of pharmacology or science. Drugs are banned because of racism. Can you unpack that a little for us? In the United States, up until about 1914, drugs were legal. Americans were free to alter their consciousness with the substances of their choice. And many people got drugs like cocaine, opioid-related drugs through the mail from Sears and those kind of companies. Um, And then at the start of the 20th century, we started to hear these exaggerated claims about cocaine use by Black people and uh, these folks committing heinous crimes. Of course, all of these were uncorroborated exaggerations, but they were effective in getting our first drug laws passed in uh, 1914, and they basically banned cocaine and opioid-related drugs. And then in 1937, uh, we did the same thing with marijuana. Hmm. So you're a drug researcher. You're also a drug user personally, right? Yeah, that's like saying, so you are a person, you have sex. Uh, Yep, that's right. (laughs) So, you know, um, like you pointed out, I'm a drug researcher. And so I study drugs like methamphetamine, opioids, crack cocaine, marijuana, a wide range of drugs. And so I wanted to know everything about what I studied. And so all of those drugs I have tried. So I've done a wide range of drugs. And so I think I'm better informed about what the effects are. And so I can separate the uh, myths from reality uh, based on the data as well as my personal experience. So do you have parameters for like when or how you're going to do, you know, something like cocaine? Yeah, think about it like driving an automobile. Driving an automobile is a potentially dangerous activity. You know, if you're going down a two lane highway, you got cars coming the opposite directions and they have to trust you and you have to trust them. I mean, it's a really a potentially dangerous thing. And the parameters are that, well, you don't drink and drive and you be alert and you, you know, you know what you're doing. The same is true with an activity like taking a psychoactive substance. You have to set aside time, at least when you're older, you have to set aside time. You have to get sleep. You have to eat, you know, just like if I'm going to go to see a show, I have to set aside a couple of hours and then I have to plan on parking or take a taxi, all of these things. Um, the same is true when 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 an old person like me engages in drug use. Yeah. Well, and then you think about things like that are perfectly legal, like alcohol or tobacco or even caffeine and how socially acceptable those drugs are and, you know, how damaging they can be. Right. Absolutely. And then when you think about alcohol, the reason why alcohol is legal, because remember, we prohibited alcohol from 1920 to 1933. But the reason why we reverse prohibition is because we promised the American taxpayer that there would be no more income tax and the tax tax revenue from alcohol would cover all of our income tax. That's Hmm. why alcohol is legal. Hmm. It does seem like we're making some strides when it comes to destigmatizing drug use. I think especially about marijuana, like even just over the last couple of years, I feel like that has completely shifted. Is there 
another drug specifically that you think should see the similar treatment or are you just like, yeah, no, they should all, they should all be available on, you know, to responsible adults. Yeah. I mean, the drugs that people seek MDMA, cocaine, heroin, those are the ones that people uh, most often seek that are banned. Oh, of course, some of the psychedelics as well. I think that they should be legally available. Uh, That way we will have quality control. Don't have to worry about tainted substances. During prohibition, tens of thousands of Americans died because they consumed tainted alcohol. Hmm. That went away when we reversed prohibition. Wow. So you mentioned something like heroin. Of course, a lot of people are going to be like, okay, but what about addiction? Yes. Addiction is a a serious concern and people may become addicted to something like heroin. But the thing that people need to understand is that no matter what drug we're talking about, from heroin to alcohol to marijuana to cocaine, the vast majority of the users of any of those drugs are not addicted. So it tells you that when it comes to addiction, you have to look beyond the drug. And we know that, for example, a large percentage of people who are addicted to drugs have co-occurring psychiatric illnesses. Mm -hmm. Treat the psychiatric illness, then you will deal with the, the drug addiction. And then we also know that a number of people who have had gainful employment where they had they made a middle class living and then they had the rug taken out from under them as those companies those factories moved to other countries and their job markets crashed that plays an important role in terms of the predicting who's going to become addicted make sure people are gainfully employed all of these things are critically important for addiction in america we pretend that the drug is the most important uh, factor in this addiction mix, when in fact it is not. So you just named, I, I don't know, I mean, at least half a dozen policy changes kind of implicitly, right? When you talk about, you know, a, a fair, like a good middle class income, all of those sorts of things. Um, is there like one change, especially when it comes to drug policy, that you'd really like to see and are optimistic about maybe being able to make happen in the next couple of years? Yeah. So uh, let's just think about it from this perspective, say like a practical change and that's likely to happen versus yeah. a change that my sort of pie in the sky change. Right. I really I would really like to see us implement these anonymous free drug checking facilities where people can submit small samples of their drug and have a a chemical printout emailed to them and they know exactly what's in their substance. A number of countries around the world already have these facilities and they don't have the overdose problem that we have. Right, because what you're saying often the the cause of an overdose death is because someone thinks that they're taking one thing when actually it's something that could be as many as like 40 times stronger. Yes, absolutely. The rock star Prince, he died April 21st, 2016, and he died as a result of fentanyl. It's been reported that he thought he had oxycodone or Percocet, Uh, When, in fact, he had fentanyl, he had a large amount of fentanyl in his system uh, upon his death. And so if we had those drug checking facilities, maybe Prince would still be around today. 
Well, Dr. Hart, oh my gosh, thank you so much. This was really enlightening and I'm just so glad we're able to have the conversation. Thank you. After the break, Martha Wells tells us about her Murderbot Diaries series, which sounds a lot more menacing than it is, I promise. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Our next guest has written a series of books that are truly delightful. They're called the Murderbot series. And based on that title alone, you might be like, Greta, delightful? Really? But I am going to stick with that terminology. Martha Wells has written many books, including five novellas and one full-length book. Her latest is called Fugitive Telemetry. It came out earlier this month. Martha, welcome to Nerdette. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited to have you. Um, So I first heard about Murderbot actually when I was interviewing N.K. Jemison at like a a Zoom event in the early days of the pandemic. And I forget what adjective she used, but she described it in like a very warm, delighted way. And I was kind of surprised because I was like, wait, these are called Murderbot. So for people who have no idea what we're talking about, can you tell us a little bit about who Murderbot is? Well, Murderbot is a sec unit. It's a far future science fiction story to start with. Mm -hmm. And Murderbot is a sec unit that is part AI and part human neural tissue. And a sec unit being security unit. So like a like a security thing people would contract out. Yes. And they're basically they're they're enslaved by these corporations to be used as security for mining installations and exploration. Normally, they have a governor module that controls all their actions and forces them to obey orders or it punishes them. Mm -hmm. They have no free will. Yes, they have no free will. And before the story starts, before All Systems Red starts, Murderbot has managed to hack its governor module. And in the belief system of this world, if any sec unit manages to hack itself and get free will, the first thing it should do is run around and massacre everybody. But instead (laughs) of doing that, Murderbot has basically been pretending to, to still be under control, doing its job and mostly watching uh, dramas and comedy, whatever, whatever it can, it can find that it likes. Um, and then in the first book, it has to reveal that it's actually hacked its governor module in order to save the clients, the human clients that um, it's been rented out to at that time, because it's actually come to like them. Um, and that's where the series starts off. <laughs> it's just, I, I mean, it is just such a delight. I don't know. I think you have such a fascinating combination of emotion and action in these books, I think. Is that like, do you think that's why people love them so much? I think so. And I think it's Murderbot is very vulnerable about its feelings and it's very vulnerable. It's very open about um, the anxiety and depression and the PTSD that's been caused by being in its situation. Um, And it's also very funny and um, 
It can be very honest about its emotions, and also it can be kind of an unreliable narrator. So what has feedback been like to the series? Um, I've gotten a lot of great feedback on it. There's a lot of people who identify with this character because of their own experiences with anxiety and depression, with autism. Yeah, I would guess with kind of with feeling different in all sorts of different ways. Anything that makes you feel different or othered in society, people who feel that way have been able to identify with this character. And I put a lot of my own feelings of being different and othered and my own issues with anxiety and depression into the character. And I think that's what people are responding to. Yeah, I could see that. One thing I was thinking about a lot with Murderbot is, you know, I mean, when it comes to sci-fi in general, it's often such a great vehicle to explore humanity. And I think it's really interesting to think about the idea of you know, often with sci-fi, you're taking humans off of Earth and putting them in a different place. And it almost makes them, it's almost easier to sort of understand how they work when you kind of take them out of that context that we're used to. And it's interesting because I think in some ways you've kind of taken that notion and expanded upon it even further by having a robot as your main character. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Yeah. The idea you're kind of, uh, what what is the essential of being human? Yeah. Even though Murderbot doesn't want to be human, it doesn't particularly like humans, most humans. It sort of likes them reluctantly Mm -hmm. um, until it really starts making friends. And it sort of boils down to, you know, is Murderbot basically human, whether it wants to be or not? Or is it just, is it a person who is not human? Yeah. Well, I think, too, I mean, the fact that Murderbot is existed for so long under such terrible circumstances and saw presumably some of the worst elements of humanity, I could totally see why it wouldn't want to belong to that category. But the fact that it manages to make friends with humans regardless, like I think it is such a beautiful commentary that, you know, yes, as dark and grim as humanity can be, there are still some really, some really important bright spots that we can also focus on. Yeah. And I think that's a probably one of the things that uh, is attractive about Murderbot is that um, it's really an example that you don't have to be controlled by your past or your circumstances. Yeah. Yeah. That you can be the person you want to be regardless of what has happened to you. I think especially as we're, you know, kind of starting to come out of what has been a really intense year in a lot of different ways for all of us. I think that message is, is timelier than ever. Yeah, I hope so. Martha Wells, thank you so much for talking with me. It was such a pleasure and I just love those books so much. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed it. That's it for today. Quick reminder, if you are reading Great Circle, even if you haven't finished it yet, we would love to know what you think for Book Club. We're recording this coming week, so make it happen ASAP. You can send comments, questions, reactions by recording yourself on your phone and then emailing the file to nerdappodcast at gmail.com. Expect to hear the conversation in your feed on Tuesday, June 22nd. 
If you're not a book clubber, but you still want to keep in touch, that is totally cool. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Nerdat Podcast or join our Nerdat Headquarters group on Facebook. We also have a pretty sweet little newsletter that comes out Friday mornings. You can get that if you go to wbez.org slash AF. This episode was produced by me and Isabel Carter. Our executive producer is Brandon Banazak. We will see you next week. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.